Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. I'm bringing back a guest that we had a couple of months ago who uh, we really had a dynamic and lively and enjoyable conversation with Dr. Duke Pesta, and he's given me permission to call him Duke for the interview. So we only have an hour, so what I'd like you to do, if you'd like to have here a bio of Dr. Duke Pesta, just go back in the episode's archive to the first interview with uh, Dr. Duke Pesta, and we'll get right in. So Duke, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Glad to be with you again. Yeah, really looking forward to this very much. So um, I, uh, there's a lot of things that I'm interested in talking about that I have uh, want to discuss with you. But before uh, I go that route, I want to reach out to you and just uh, say hello and touch in with your process and find out what you are really focused on and concerned and excited about these days. Well, you know, I am uh, continuing to teach. That's my first love. Uh, there's nothing like having uh, kids in a classroom. I've got my university kids uh, and uh, being able to have a semester to try to awaken them and provide them with information and uh, help form a worldview for them. Uh, that's always my first love. And then uh, working with our school and working with media and doing interviews and uh, fighting for education reform, those things keep me busy as well. Okay, well, I think that dovetails quite a bit with what I wanted to talk to you about anyway. So if it's okay with you, I'll just pick a place to start. Okay. Okay, so uh, what I've been really concerned about lately has been two things. Number one is the economic warfare by the deep state and Facebook and YouTube and Google on people that are speaking out and exposing things and saying things that are uh, experienced as a threat to the powers that be, um, it basically has the effect of um, taking away people's livelihood and it also has basically the effect of trashing the First Amendment. And I'm thinking that out of this crisis will lead a complete New, will lead to a completely new parallel uh, type of communication system that's going to be outside of Facebook and outside of Google and outside of YouTube. But I wanted to bring it up and get your take on that. I think it's a great point. Um, you know, my university kids going through the system, the public school system, the public university system, uh, they have are absolutely convinced that industry, business, free markets, capitalism, companies and corporations, that they are all in the service of some vast right-wing conspiracy. <coughs> Excuse me. So my kids have bought this sort of um, handy lie that corporations are all right-wing environmentally, environmentally killing operations. And what you just said is exactly right. It is amazing how many of our biggest companies and corporations are working uh, with the surveillance state. They are in bed and in league with uh, shadow government in some ways. Uh, I guess the word we use for this now is crony capitalism, isn't it? That um, many co companies and corporations, uh, far from uh, pursuing radical right-wing laissez-faire values, they have found out that by teaming up with government, abetting government, particularly in its surveillance systems, uh, to form, like you say, kind of a shadow government, that kind of crony capitalism in bed with government entities uh, that really is uh, a way to make a lot of money, to be able to function in a monopoly without uh, being punished for it, being rewarded actually for it. And as you said, it's created uh, not just a, an unholy alliance between huge corporate interests and a out-of-control federal government, but it's also uh, created 
a very, very chilling system where we have, like you say, shadow government, where uh, the, leak, the leaks all go a certain way. Uh, there's hypocrisy in the way laws and uh, uh, corporate policies are enforced. And so, yeah, I think what you've seen here is something uh, that, and, uh, you know, not to be hyper dramatic about it, but this is what happened in the Soviet Union uh, during the Bolshevik Revolution. This is what happened in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, certain companies in Germany in the 1930s, I'm thinking particularly of Volkswagen, right? Uh, the People's Wagon, uh, Volkswagen, some of the chemical companies, uh, Mercedes-Benz, uh, that they cozied up to the Nazi government. They received incredible perks from the state, and they participated with the state in exactly what we're beginning to see here, this kind of shadow government business, surveillance, uh, mind control, uh, manipulating data for the benefit of the company and the state. Do you agree with me that this will give rise to some creative response where, there, where people will come up with parallel um, structures and spaces so that people who are truly committed to freedom and truth will have another space to communicate? I hope so. The difference between now and the 1930s or now and the 19-teens, right? The difference now is how uh, ubiquitous the panopticon is, right? The eye in the sky, the uh, ability of, of, of the technology giants to uh, creep into almost every aspect of our communications, our interactions with each other, our, uh, with, through satellite, uh, all sorts of other things. They know where we are at all times. You know, there are even fanciful stories now. I don't know how fanciful they are of, of you know, there's in the news last week that Apple was allowing some of its phones, iPhones, uh, to be, uh, have, have spyware uh, uploaded onto them before they were then marketed and sold. So, you know, the difference between the 40s and the difference between the turn of the century is that it's much harder to create alternative communications links uh, that that aren't ultimately surveillable given the, the, the vast network that's been created over all of us. And that, that's what worries me. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, uh, The Lives of Others, uh, about the German spying in East Germany, which it, it was obviously done during uh, the, the Cold War, uh, but it was a really, really chilling Academy Award-winning look at just how powerful in the 50s and 60s the spy state was. Uh, and only in, in the last, obviously, in the last 10, 15 years, it's become so much more effective at gathering data and uh, uh, keeping an eye on what people are doing and saying. Because, you know, it seems to me as more and more people awaken and the ability to brainwash the, um, the cutting edge people like ourselves that are thinking for ourselves as, as we slip out of those clutches it seems like our weak area, especially for those of us that have families, children to support, our weak area where we're most vulnerable is economically. And it seems like the attacks against the freedom lovers now are really being targeted at their economic welfare, which makes me wonder if part of the creative response to that gambit is going to be an increased focus on creating economies and ways of exchanging goods and services that are independent from the current monetary system. I think that's a very well said. Um, and to give you some examples, think about what's happening. Uh, think about CEOs of company, like I'm thinking of the CEO of Mozilla Firefox, I believe it was, who 10 years ago donated to a Prop 8 cause in California and, and in the interim uh, has had to resign over something he did that uh, 8 or 10 years ago a lot of people were doing, just simply donating to a cause. Think about the state of California, Dave. Now, think about the state of California threatening companies who work to build the wall, right? Uh, this, is a, this is unprecedented to me that an entire state can bully and threaten private companies if they want to participate in building a wall between Mexico and America. What business is it of the state? Because you don't like the politics of the company, the state's going to threaten to drive you out of business. And how about the hypocrisy of this? So we now know that if somebody comes to you for any reason and wants a wedding cake, you're obligated to make it or you can be driven out of business. But when 
a number of fashion designers refused to, to create a dress for Ivanka Trump, for instance, to wear in the inauguration. She just took her money, went somewhere else. There was no prohibition for denying her. And so uh, when, it, when it, it fits a certain progressive narrative, you're allowed to withhold service. You're allowed to punish people if they don't do what you want them to do. But if the discrimination goes the other way, there's not a word said about it. So uh, what troubles me greatly is the inconsistency of this. So if you're a company uh, that actively seeks to fight, let's say, uh, building a wall, the government will, of California will reward you. If you're a private company that seeks to participate because what you do as a construction company, the government of California will punish you. And that's what you said, I think, is that uh, the, the creation of alternative economies may be one of the only ways to combat that. I know for a while, you remember Bitcoin and how uh, for a brief run there, Bitcoin became very popular. It seems to have receded a bit now, but you already see nascently these kind of emerging stratagems to try to combat this stuff. Absolutely. Uh, your, your comments um, made me think of something I wanted to talk to you about later, but it's on my mind, so I'll bring it up now. So you mind if I jump around a little bit? Absolutely. Okay, all right. So uh, one of the things that I really see coming to a head is the, the, the law of the land versus uh, sanctuary cities. And um, I think this could get very ugly. Like if you just take Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, the, the, if, if Trump and Sessions uh, play hardball and actually take away federal funding for those cities, that's going to hurt so many legal people there. But on the other hand, if you basically don't do anything, you're basically saying that we don't live in a nation of laws anymore. And it's like this huge game of chicken and um, I don't know what the answer is. There's not one answer, but I don't know. I haven't thought about it enough to really come up with creative solutions. I hope there's some really good people working on it. But, you know, on the theme of my concerns, this is a big concern I have. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Well, you know, again, it's, it's the fascism, fascism is when you use laws and bullying and pressure and economics to promote one worldview at the exclusion of all others. I don't care if, if you want to call it totalitarianism, fascism, statism, Bolshevism. It is when you use the full force of the government authority to promote certain ideas and censure others. That's all it is. And uh, I think what you said is exactly right. Think about under the Obama administration, what happened to states who violated federal mandates. They were prosecuted. What happened when uh, states did not want to uh, implement transgender bathrooms in public schools uh, because of the rewrite Obama did to Title IX? Uh, those states were money was withheld, they were sanctioned, uh, legislation pressure was brought to bear against those states. Now, the federal government, under a different president, is basically not inventing law, it's defaulting to law we've had since the founding of the country. You have no right to be in this country illegally. You have no right to harbor uh, uh, illegals. Uh, look, and I wanna make it clear, and, and I know you know this, Dave, I'm a big supporter of legal immigration. I think America is a country of immigrants, but it's amazing to me how we have obliterated the distinction between being in a country illegally and being here illegally. Uh, that the, pe the progressives never wanna talk about that. So having just made that caveat, right, I want to see more legal immigration if it benefits us and the immigrants, but illegality is a federal, it's, it's a federal civil, viol civil violation that has federal implications. The federal government is entitled to monitor, to know who's here, to make sure people come here by process, and it's completely unfair to people who have spent time and money coming here the legal way that all of this effort and uh, money is being spent on people who came here illegally. So having said that, if you think about the federal government, it has an absolute right to control the borders. The Obama administration ignored federal law. Everybody in the Obama administration swore, on, uh, the, t t swore an oath to the Constitution, didn't they? President Obama, when he became president, swore to, be, to, to implement and defend the constitutional legal system that we have. But he ignored it when it came to immigration. In fact, he opened the borders wider. Now you've got a president 
who is simply not making stuff up. He's defaulting to the Constitution, the Constitution that he swore to uphold and defend. And now you have major cities in this country that are absolutely defying that. It seems to me, and I understand that innocent people are going to be hurt, but the American left, certainly at the level of government, has decided now that they are not, the law doesn't apply to them. They have decided that they are the law. This is a coup. This is unacceptable. And by the way, it would be unacceptable if right-wing politicians were doing this. But no, it's I, unacceptable. I understand. I understand everything you're saying. Uh, it's almost self-evident to me, everything you're saying. But my question is, what is going to happen? I mean, how is this going to play out? I mean, logistically, I mean, it, you've got, I would imagine, you know, it's not my field, but I would imagine that there's probably in Los Angeles County, I wouldn't be surprised if there were over a million people on some kind of government funding in order to help them meet their basic living requirements. I'm just trying to think logistically how this is going to play out. What do you, I'm not that, you're, you're much more of a student of history than I am. What's your sense of how this is actually going to come down and play out? Well, you know, I think the worst case scenario, I, I seriously doubt that the federal government is going to send the National Guard to surround LA. I seriously doubt there's going to be troops in the streets trying to enforce this. Um, I think, honestly, that the best way to handle it, if you ask me, and I, I'm not, as, uh, I'm not a, as much of a student of this as other people, but here's what I would like to see happen. I think that the federal government is well within their rights to arrest uh, the, the, the civic leaders of these places. So the mayor, of, the mayor of Los Angeles can indeed be subject to arrest and prosecution. And, and that's a way, if you were to remove the mayor and some of the, city count, the chief city council leaders who are enforcing this re refusal to comply with the federal government, if you went after them, I think it would send a major message to the rest of the communities. At, at which point, I think um, that would be a nice salvo. I mean, the, the, instead of punishing everybody, you are simply holding accountable the high-level officials who are implementing these policies of disobedience. Uh, that would be a place I would start. Um, I don't know how it would fare. I don't know in a city like Los Angeles if, uh, if the entire city government from top to bottom uh, is willing to go to prison over this. But I mean, it, it is, it, the one thing I do know is that you cannot at, maintain yourself as a nation and allow selective enforcement of federal law. Uh, even those of us who didn't like federal law under Obama, we complied. Uh, they're going to have to comply now. And I think that if you go after the leadership uh, you have a good chance of without violence and without uh, having to bring troops in or, or you know, uh, a National Guard, all that other garbage, you could send a really important signal to places. Now, L.A. is so big, but think about this sheriff in Texas. We have a small Texas county where the sheriff is ignoring state and federal law. Her name is Hernandez. She's completely ignoring it. Think, think about if you simply arrested her or prosecuted her. Uh, in a small community like that. They've already lost a million and a half dollars from the state of Texas, that people in that community are suffering for it. If you went after the, the sheriff, because she is clearly negligent, not doing her, her sworn duty, uh, maybe you could shake loose a little bit of this. You know, it seems to me if, if, if the bleeding hearts really wanted to help um, the causes, the real root causes of all of this, it would seem to me that you'd really be helping everybody a lot more if instead of just pretending that an organism or a country doesn't require borders to be healthy, semi-permeable membranes, it would be a lot better to put your time and your energy and your thought and your money into improving the conditions of other countries. You know, you, you, I, I'm so glad you said that because I've been making this argument for years. Why is it that America is morally, ethically obligated to accept all these refugees from these foreign countries, but that there is not the slightest bit of pressure placed on these countries to adapt their government systems to things that will help their own people? I don't know if you saw it, but just last week, the Catholic Church 
came out in, in, in Mexico and basically said any, any Mexican citizen who participates in building a wall or abetting the American immigration system from deporting illegals, they were traitors, the Catholic Church said. Now, this is the Catholic Church, and I was raised Catholic. 20 years of Catholic education. This is the same Catholic church that lectures America about it must have open borders and then turns around and tells the Mexican people, and Mexico is a Catholic country, turns around and tells the Mexicans that if you abet law and order on the border, you're a traitor. And so my question is, is your question. Um, why is it that there is no responsibility placed on Mexico whatsoever to reform its quasi-socialist government to make access and equity, uh, to make freedom and opportunity uh, in the country, to make those things grow so that Mexicans don't want to leave. Uh, it's, those questions are never asked. And, and, and this, is what, this is what tells me, Dave, that this has nothing to do with uh, outreach to poor people. This has nothing to do with trying to help the suffering. This is about demographically and electorally reformulating what America is, bringing in hordes and hordes of people uh, for no other reason. In other words, the progressives who are doing this are using these immigrants to gerrymander our electoral system, to completely transform uh, the makeup of our government, the ethnicity of our nation in some ways, to make it more receptive to progressive, liberal, big welfare state causes. Uh, and, and that's why I'm really annoyed by this, because under the mask of trying to help people, uh, the big government entities behind this kind of immigration, they are doing it for wholly selfish reasons. And so what I'm saying is, is that, is that if you are an American citizen and this is an area where you feel really drawn to serve and you really want to make a difference and get to the cause of these things, I would recommend that these people put their energy into confronting the dysfunctionality of these other countries and do what they can to, um, to upgrade that. Uh, that seems to make so much more sense to me. If you could take a, a refugee, instead of having them have to come over to another country with another language, another culture, another value system, and you could empower that person in their home country to have a life of greater dignity and greater safety, that to me seems much, much wiser. Well, I love your show for this reason, David, because you're always looking at the humanity of the issues. Um, I, you know, I, the last couple of comments I've made is sort of focused on the political, and I think you're right. Uh, the humanistic elements of this are the more important, and you're, but, but I think both of the things work together. Um, you know, the Catholic Church, for instance, uh, you know, which has a huge humanitarian footprint across the globe, um, they're wading into politics on this issue, right? They're, they're not looking out for what's the, in the immediate best welfare of Catholics in Mexico. What they are doing here is trying to pressure a first world country to absorb poverty uh, rather than looking at the root causes of that poverty and allowing Mexican people to stay in Mexico, for instance, but have a better quality of life there. Uh, how much of our aid, how much of the money we're spending? How, we're closing hospitals in this country. We're at $20 trillion in debt. What I've never understood between the third world and the first world arguments is, why in the world would we want to bankrupt America? Why would we want to so overburden our system that we no longer are able to help our own citizens, let alone foreign ones? It's that phrase, killing the, killing the goose that lays the golden egg, right? America historically has taken in more immigrants than any other country in the history of the world. That's not going to stop tomorrow. If we simply control our borders, we'll still take people and we'll still take refugees. There's no doubt about that. If they come here the right way, we're not going to stop that. But at some point, the systems become so overloaded that it's not just Mexican people that we're not, or, or South American people or refugees that we're not helping. We, 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 we find ourselves in a position where we're much less able to help Americans, struggling Americans. Uh, because we don't have the funds to do it anymore. The debt is crippling. Our, our social institutions are overwhelmed by these influxes of, of people, legal and illegal. And so the quality of all American lives and the American civilization in general begins to decline, and we're in that period now. So not only are we not helping places like Mexico become better for their own citizens, we're lowering the overall standard of living and quality of life for Americans across the board, too, with these crazy policies. Well, I mean, I don't know what your worldview is. You know, I 
am pretty much a conspiracy theorist. I believe that the weakening of America is very, very much by, by very sophisticated design. I mean, yeah. if, we I, that. if I were an evil person that wanted to socially engineer the world, I would be putting a lot of energy into weakening the integrity and the fabric of the United States of America for obvious reasons. So that's my worldview. I don't think this is by accident at all. No, I agree. And that's why I said earlier that uh, uh, the people who are doing this, in this case, pro big government progressive status is the word for them. Uh, they are not doing this out of the goodness of their heart to help struggling immigrants. They are doing this because, like you say, uh, they have alternative motives, and those are to completely undermine the free market system of this country, to undermine liberty, to undermine individual rights and property rights, uh, to make this country a collectivist state. That's what they want to do. And it's interesting, too. Notice how the progressives always want immigration, legal or illegal, from countries that have a long history themselves of socialist government. We're not importing Australians. We're not importing, uh, you know, uh, Ger uh, Germans or French people. We're not importing Canadians en masse. We're importing people from places, South America, uh, East Asia. We're in importing people from countries that have long, long fraught histories of statist nationalist control of government and of people. So we're bringing in an entire underclass that's much more comfortable with socialism than they are with democracy and freedom. You know, and I think one of the major, uh, this will be a segue into another one of my concerns. I think one of the really evil things that's happening is the equation in the American mind between what you call crony capitalism and true free enterprise so that uh, young people don't make that distinction and then they throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, I see that every day on my college campuses. They've already, we're already there. Our kids are so economically illiterate, but this is not an accident. Our kids are economically illiterate and they are historically illiterate. And what that means is, is that they, they don't know what it is they don't know. They don't know what they're asking for when they start shutting down free speech on college campuses. They think they're doing this with the best, purest, most progressive motives. They don't recognize that, they don't even recognize that they are fighting intolerance with intolerance, that they are being anti-democratic in the name of democracy. They just don't get it. But this is what you need. All revolutions, violent or nonviolent, that, that totally transform countries, they all start primarily with college-age kids, younger minds uh, that don't have the historical perspective, that don't have the historical memory of what it's like to be a divided country, what it's like to engage in civil war, what it's like to have this kind of state-controlled violence. They don't understand it. Uh, and so I really do believe that our school systems, our public schools and our universities are also, to use your word, complicit in keeping our kids willfully educated, uneducated, about certain aspects of, our, of, of human nature that would make these kids a little bit more reflective and a little bit more hesitant to engage in violence to promote their own ends and aims. Well, this is what frightens me the most, is the fact that they don't see, that they don't, they're not accessing the part of their natural intelligence that would allow them to discover their own hypocrisy. Exactly. Hypocrisy is a word that we've all but stripped from the lexicon, isn't it? There is no hypocrisy if you are pursuing what you believe to be social justice, right? So to my kids, social justice allows you to silence some voices in defense of other voices. It allows you to stop speech you don't like to spare the feelings of people you do like. It allows you to blame, to, to scapegoat individuals, to protect other individuals. So for instance, it's bad to stereotype African-Americans. We all agree with that. In this, we share our worldview with the progressives. However, progressives have no problem stereotyping men or white males or Christians or conservatives. And so what you say is exactly right. Um, we have fired these kids up in such a way that intolerance of those that they deem unworthy is a virtue.
now. Hatred, contempt, even violence against those who they consider unprogressive are now seen as virtues. And that's what's most alarming about this. Absolutely. That's a really, you know, um, I don't see how you can have a thriving republic with people whose capacity to think clearly and question their own premises is at the level of our young people today. Well, let me ask you, what percentage of the American people do you think even know what a republic is or even know that America is a republic? I can tell you, in my university classrooms, it's one in 10. One in 10 of my students even recognize that America is a constitutional republic. Even the media, you look at major media outlets, they never refer to America as a democratic republic. They refer exactly. to us as so a democracy, can, right? Exactly. So how can you be a good steward of something that you don't even know what that something is? Well, and that's right. And that's where we get back to the, this is not an accident. It's, you're right. It's a conspiracy. It is a conspiracy to teach, and we've been doing it for 50 years, to teach younger and younger minds a false narrative about our history, our country, the, our government, our ethics, uh, the law. Uh, we have conspired. And this is why myself, you know, my area is education. I've been a, I first came to your show to talk about things like Common Core, the federal takeover of education. And all these things are being done in our kids' classrooms. Uh, all this takeover, the centralization, all this standardization, it's being done not to educate kids, not to turn them into critical thinkers, but to make them compliant, submissive, and uh, approving of the status paradigms that are being pushed in the classroom now. Right. Yeah, and, and obviously the fact that there's that whole agenda that, is is the water that they're swimming in that isn't acknowledged as being an agenda that obviously is a huge concern and you know the i think the solution is to a great extent what you're doing where you have these young people for a semester and you can, by your living example and by your Socratic inquiry, some of those people are going to start to question things and think. You know, um, I think that's right. There are far few people doing that. You know, I mean, I am really an odd duck, a dinosaur. Um, it, there are very few of us at any level of education from kindergarten through college who um, are really trying to push this way of thinking, critical thinking. Um, when my students, uh, you, know, you know, as teachers, you hear lots of different things. You know, it's nice to hear from your kids. They love your class. It's nice to hear from your kids that you're their favorite teacher. But those things don't matter that much to me. The one comment I get from my students, and I get it pretty routinely, is the one that makes me know I'm on the right path. When my kids say to me, Dr. Pesta, how come no one's ever told me this before? Right? When, I, when, I, when I show kids that we are a republic, not, we are a constitutional republic, we are not a democracy, when I show them uh, all these other aspects, when I show them the positive aspects of free markets and economic liberty, I get that comment a lot. Why am I 22 years old, Dr. Pesta, and I've never heard this before? How could of I course, get... Of course, that question is the invitation, the spiritual and intellectual invitation that allows you to really get into some really powerful discussions with them. I hope there's some kind of structure that you've created so that you can leverage that opening because when that happens, that's just the beginning of where the gold really is. Right, that's the epiphany moment, right? Every, every change of heart, every change of soul, every change of mind comes with an epiphany. Something, some comment, some person comes into your life, some revelation, some tragedy befalls us, and we have this awakening, this epiphany. And, and for the, those kids, it's an epiphany that they're 24 years old, they're college juniors, and for the first time, they've been exposed to an alternative way. For the first time, they see things uh, in a much different perspective. And the nice thing, and I will say this, is that it's really easy, once the kid has the epiphany moment, it's really easy to eradicate 20 years of miseducation. 
because they're not, our kids are not stupid. They're miseducated. And so once you show them the correct paradigms, once you plug them into real history, actual political science, once you awaken in them uh, a, an awareness of real truth and facts and narratives, uh, then they, you could just see their minds self-correcting. Oh, well, then that explains this. And that explains this. Oh, and it's like all these light bulbs start flashing. It really is. That's the best moment of teaching for me. It's great. And, uh, you know, that segues into something I wanted to talk about that concerns me is the lack of distinction in the collective mindset. And this has to do with the capacity to think critically and evaluate information. Uh, is the lack of distinction between a fact and an opinion. Um, when I sometimes am channel surfing and I come across uh, what's going on in the news and mainstream media, I see this all the time. I see something that's alleged that somebody said that some anonymous source said is now assumed to be a fact and evidence and then the person goes off on a tangent. And, um, you know, I'm sure one of the things that you do at some, in some way with your, with your young people is help them to make this distinction between a fact and a, and a point of view. Yeah, I think you're right. We have undermined, well, we've undermined truth. We've turned... Um, religion, all religion, we've turned it, and spirituality, we've turned it into mythology. We have taken, we've deconstructed rational discourse. Philosophy in the universities has become completely subjective now. The idea that for thousands and thousands of years in Western culture, philosophers pursued absolute truth. They pursued logic and reason. Now logic and reason themselves are being deconstructed as simply white male racist constructs. Uh, we're teaching math now, cultural math, which argues that the purpose of math is not to get right answers. The purpose of math is to uh, engage with numbers for numbers' sake, right? Uh, which is all well and good until you have to build a bridge or fill out a, an accounting sheet. Um, the argument is being made now that rationalism, logic, reason, these are, are Eurocentric white values that oppress people. And so it's not surprising that these young kids, full of zeal and miseducation, they become inquisitors, don't they? Uh, they? They can't be swayed by reason or fact. Uh, they, they, as we said earlier, uh, what we call hypocrisy, they see as, as, as a zealousness to the cause. It's really a dangerous situation. Yes, I mean, what I, I, I see this as, I've, I've spoken out about this for a long time, this danger that I call postmodern relativism, where, where the freedom to have an opinion is conflated with a lack of respect for reality. And like you said, um, I wouldn't want to go rock climbing with those people. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, I see this as a very, very, very dangerous, evil trend that um, is highly correlated with the existential angst that many young people feel because they can't get their bearings. They can't find. They can't find home base. I think that's well said, David. Very well said. And and I think you hit on something important. Um, we have substituted truth for politics. What used to be the quest for truth, truth and virtue, right? Because what is virtue? Virtue is knowing the truth and employing it, right? A virtuous person is the person who puts truth into action. But we have made virtue socially, we have argued that virtue itself is nothing but a social contract, construct and that truth doesn't exist. So what have we substituted for truth and virtue? We've substituted politics, right? And so truth and virtue for thousands of years was enough to make us content. Um, poor, poor individuals would move out into the desert, into the wilderness at, with their truth and practice virtue. And it was enough for their lives. They had contentment. The poor, the underclasses, as long as they had a sense of virtue and truth, uh, they could survive and function. But these kids who have politics at their disposal, not truth and virtue, 
they find politics endlessly dissatisfying. Well, that's why. Look, look at what happened. We took out their progressive president, Obama. We put in Donald Trump. And now the politics has failed them, right? Under Obama, you had a political savior. Under Obama, for a lot of these college kids, even though his policies were oftentimes retrograde and working against their own interests, they, they thought they had a political savior. Now Trump is in office 60 days, and their politics has failed them. The god of politics has betrayed them. Uh, the man with the wrong political views is at the helm. And so you see what happens. Like little children, without anything to, to buffer them, they lash out violently, they're angry, they're, they're, they protest, they break windows. Like little kids without a sense of security, they lash out. And that's what happens when you substitute politics for truth and virtue. Absolutely. So let's segue into talking about Donald Trump and Trump's presidency. Um, I think I might have mentioned to you in the last interview that uh, I was very pleasantly surprised when uh, Hillary was defeated. I wasn't a big Trump supporter, but I was definitely putting a tremendous amount of my energy, hundreds of hours, over the months preceding the election, doing everything I could to raise consciousness about the truth about Hillary Clinton and what she has actually done in her life and what she has actually said. So um, I had kind of a, a strange kind of euphoria that night, even though I wasn't a big Trump supporter. And uh, so I've been observing what Trump is, what he's being and what he's doing. And to me, he's such a mixed bag. And um, the biggest concern that I have about him is that he seems to have surrounded himself with a bunch of neocons and even some traitors. And the, um, I would say the white hats that are supporting Trump in the good way and um, hoping that he will wake up and do the right thing, um, I think they're getting pretty worried now. Um, and I'm getting pretty worried because it seems like he's operating within a den of thieves and I've never trusted Paul Ryan and that whole ilk and the, uh, the way Paul Ryan handled the whole alternative to Obamacare to me was either tremendously incompetent or traitorous or some combination of both. I bring that up as an example to express my concern that I think maybe Trump doesn't know what he doesn't know. And I don't know how to support him and what we're all about other than to bring the issue up. Well, first of all, I live in Wisconsin and you are absolutely right. Paul Ryan is a snake. This was not an accident. It was not ignorance. He did the same thing with, the, uh, with Common Core, if you recall. He didn't fix it. He simply enshrined it uh, by forcing leg uh, legislation through the ESSA Act that nobody really understood. He tried to do exactly the same thing with healthcare. He, he, he was going to keep 95% of Obamacare and the worst aspects of Obamacare would have remained. He wanted to ram it through in the first couple weeks of the administration. Uh, you, you even had Republicans now saying things like, well, once we pass this bill, you'll see what's in it. How is that any different than what Nancy Pelosi did all those years ago? So I agree with you about Ryan. My concern, and, and your narrative about Trump is my narrative. I, what, he wasn't my first choice. Um, I had serious reservations about him, but I was incredibly pleased that he won. I ended up voting for him. Also incredibly pleased that Hillary Clinton went down to defeat. But now the problem ensues. And the problem is, is that Trump has never been a conservative. He's never really been a Republican. He's always been a pro, he's been a primarily a Democrat. He very much uh, supported Hillary Clinton with a lot of money when he was a businessman. Most of his social values are liberal social values, left-wing social values. So he has no history of conservatism. He has no consistent uh, history of, of running uh, what we would call a sound government. So he's going to have a huge learning curve. I'm as concerned as you are that Trump has surrounded himself with far too many insiders, some traitorous, I would agree with you there. 
And so the healthcare is, exa- is a classic example. Uh, clearly, uh, Donald Trump did not spend five minutes thinking about an alternative healthcare solution. He let Ryan do it, right? He didn't get into the weeds. There's no way in 60 days Donald Trump could have really wrapped his mind around the healthcare bubble. So he sort of defaulted, right? He defaulted to Rhino Republicans, Paul Ryan, to write the bill for him. And that doesn't bother, even that doesn't bother me. I can live with that. What really bothered me was when Donald Trump threatened, uh, verbally threatened those who opposed the the new healthcare law, uh, the Freedom Caucus, when he said to them, you either get on board or we're going to primary you. You've got got Donald Trump now. Uh, the, The Freedom Caucus basically said, this is Obamacare. It's not going to change the problem, so we won't support it. And for that, uh, the so-called champion of Republicans, uh, Donald Trump, he actually threatened to find a way to unelect uh, those particular congressmen and senators. That, that was very discouraging to me. You know, and it seems to me that there are so many simple things he could have done. You know, I think his strength is... I think he enjoys it. I think he's good at it. I think his strength is to take his message directly to the people. I think if you try to deal with Congress as it is, you're dealing with a den of thieves. And I think if, if I were advising him, I would have said, look, talk to Rand Paul. Put Rand Paul near the point of this and, um, and, and take your message directly to the people because I think, I think he's coming up against a combination of his own ignorance and his own personality flaws right now. And I think there are a lot of good people that um, have high hopes for Trump, but the last few weeks to me have been very disappointing. And I'm not really sure where to go from here in terms of my, um, my citizenship. Well, I'm with you. And I think that if I were, you mentioned if you were advising Donald Trump, if I were advising him, I would have advised him to do what you promised. Number one, repeal, repeal it, repeal Obamacare. You can do it. I think that if he'd have done it right away, he'd have had the force behind him. Um, Now, that's not cruel in saying, what about everybody who's dispossessed of healthcare? What I would have done, tell me Donald Trump couldn't have done this. This is where his strength is. You repeal Obamacare, then you call in the leaders of all those health, of all those insurance companies, and you say to them, until we replace this, you and me, the government and the insurance companies are going to keep those people covered until we replace it. But we're going to, uh, we're going to repeal it right now. That's where his strength is. You get those insurance company business leaders together. You're going to say to them, this is where Trump could have been effective. Not working with Congress, that den of thieves. Work with the businessmen and say, hey, I've repealed this. That's going to help you in the long run. But you have to help us. You continue to insure them. We'll help, insure, we'll help you insure them until we come up with a fair, equitable, and meaningfully workable healthcare solution in the next six months. And think about that. If you had repealed it, that would have forced both houses of Congress to immediately set about trying to fix it. Now, you, you, you let a fake bill fail, so nobody's doing anything. That, if he'd have gone to the businessmen first, repealed it and gone to the businessmen. He could have used his clout to fix this. I think he made a big mistake there in not doing it that way. You know, I love that idea. I kind of got excited when you, I was listening to that. I would love for that idea to be shared with a wider audience. Uh, Have you shared this idea in other contexts? No, no one's asked me about it. Um, but I would love to. So I do a lot of radio and whenever I can, I bring it up. But I think that's how it should have been fixed, you know? Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not one who wants, I don't want to be uh, known for this idea, but I would love somebody else to pick it up, right? And it, it just seems so logically obvious to me that Trump, and you said it, you, 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 you sort of articulated the same thing, David, without me saying a word, that Trump's strength is business. It's not government. And working with Congress is exactly the one thing he promised us he would not do. Uh, he, he, he was not going to Washington to become a politician, I should say, right? That means he was not going to Washington, he promised us, to become like Congress. Uh, but he did. On this issue, he decided to be completely a member of Congress, right? He defended Paul Ryan, even though Ryan was being uh, a dishonest. He called out the responsible congressman who opposed this. So uh, where, this is where I share your fear. His first 
big legislative attempt, he sided with all the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. So uh, I want the Donald Trump who's going to who's getting Ford Motor uh, to build more plants in America. I want the Donald Trump who's stopping companies from leaving. I want that Trump to work with businessmen to fix the problem because Congress can't and they won't. Well, what's exciting to me about this idea, besides the fact that I think it's wor- it, it could work, is the fact that it could still work. I mean, there's no reason that... If Trump liked that idea, there's no reason he couldn't still do it, right? Tell me Donald Trump wouldn't be a hero. If he came out tomorrow and said to the American people, I've tried it with Congress, they are incapable. I'm taking this to the business, the small business people who are suffering under common, uh, Obamacare. I'm taking this to the insurance companies. We're going to work out a solution. We're going to get you, the American people, behind it. And once our voices are heard, then we'll take it to Congress. And our will and our numbers will, get, will be enough to make them change their minds. You could do that. And all the negativity he's getting from those who supported him now would immediately be turned around. Well, I'd like to ask your permission for something. I've never done this before because I don't like to take things out of context. But with your permission, what I'll do is I will create two versions of this conversation. One is a complete version like I always do. And with your permission, I'd like to create an edited version that focuses just on the part of the interview that had to do with this idea you have about what Trump should do. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. That's very exciting because uh, I, there was something about, I must have had a blind spot um, in where I was coming from because that idea didn't occur to me. Uh, But I guess Trump actually um, could do that and that would actually play right into his, his sweet spot. Tell me if you had a summit at the White House, 50 of the top insurers in this country, plus 50 prominent small business owners in a room, right? At which point you hammer this out, right? Here's what we want to do. Here's what we, the few things we might want to keep in Obamacare. Here's how we can get rid of the worst aspects of it. Here's how we can make sure that nothing we do punishes small employers, right? You could do this. And and I think one of the keys could be, look, to the insurance companies. Uh, We sell car insurance from state to state, right? You can cross state lines. Uh, If you don't like your plan, uh, you can get another plan. You can tailor your car insurance, right? If all you want is minimum minimum, uh, uh, um, uh, coverage, you don't want this or that on your policy, you can buy that. Uh, We should make it so with healthcare. Why should a 70-year-old single man be paying for anybody's birth control? Why should a 19-year-old healthy boy uh, be uh, paying for anybody's hospice care? All right, let people buy the insurance and tailor it to their needs at that time of their life. What you're going to get there is much more competition, much more freedom across uh, uh, for people to adapt to what they have. And you could even, you know, at that point, you could even, if you wanted to, David, you could even try to impose a, a, uh, uh, what I would, what other people have already called catastrophic healthcare insurance, right? So at that would be the only thing that we require people to pay for is catastrophic health care. Pay a little bit every month, maybe, uh, in case you get into a massive uh, uh, car crash and need hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of therapy, or you have some kind of a debilitating disease hit you all of a sudden that requires millions of dollars of cancer treatments, right? Have a, a national system whereby there is catastrophic insurance, and outside of those catastrophic episodes, let people tailor their health care to their immediate needs. Yeah, it's so logical. It's so workable. It's great. Um, Yeah, so thank you for giving me that permission. So uh, as we wind down here for the hour, um, uh, I wondered if you could indulge me. I'd like to ask you a question that might help me to um, do a better job of uh, getting these shows out there in the world. You've been interviewed by a lot of people, and so it'd be great to get your perspective. What would you say to this question? What is it about, what's useful and valuable and unique 
about this show and the type of interview view that I do with people that um, you think is uh, is important uh, to get out there. Well, what I love about your show is is that I, I mentioned this earlier in the program. You always reduce it to the human cost, right? Uh, we can talk politics on your show. We can talk philosophy and history and economics, but uh, you keep turning it back to the question of the human. What are the human implications of this, right? And I think our politicians never do that. Uh, the people who, who forced Obamacare on us or the Paul Ryans of the world, the wonks who try to fix it, they're never looking at the human toll. Uh, immigration, we look at numbers and demographics, who's going to vote for us, who won't vote for us, but we never look at the human cost, right? Uh, my comment about the Catholic Church, shame on the Catholic, and I'm a Catholic, shame on the Catholic Church for putting politics above the human costs of all of this. Uh, and so I think uh, what I love about your show is that if more of us, from politicians to the media uh, to the average citizen, if we started to think about these major issues, social, cultural, political, philosophical, philosophical issues, if we started to look at them in terms of the immediate cost to the people most affected, I think that we would break up this centralizing solution policies that we have. Right now, everybody wants one big federal agency to fix all of our problems, but that's not how it works. That's not how life works individuals, individual communities, local governments, local schools, they can address the problems in the local communities. If you, in one word, I would say, you're putting, your show puts the individual ahead of the collective. Almost every other way of approaching our problems looks to the collective first. I'm an individualist. Uh, I happen to be a Christian. I believe that Christ was the greatest defender of the individual in human history. I believe local solutions, individual solutions, uh, let communities solve problems instead of federal entities do it. And you're going to see a huge transformation in the way we do business. You know, I'm so glad that you picked up on that and focused on that because I think until people surrender to the existential fact, if you will, that the unit of free agency is the individual and that everything is predicated on that freedom of choice and that everything that makes life worth living is predicated on preserving that and defending that, uh, we're just going to have more of the same. Well, it was Ayn Rand, wasn't it, who said, when will people realize that the largest minority in the world is the individual. The more we collectivize, the more we insist on seeing people as groups, racial groups, ethnic groups, political groups, the more callous and fascist we become. The more we see, and by the way, this is a beautiful thought, it seems to me. Uh, one of the reasons why I admire Jesus Christ is because this was his thought. The more you look at people as individuals, you see them not as part of any group or collective, the more you see people as individuals, the more impossible it is to discriminate against them, the more impossible it is to single them out some way. Uh, when we see people first and foremost as individuals, uh, that's the best hope we have for equality and justice. Uh, the minute we start putting people in groups, categories, parties, collectives, is the minute we start betraying our own rhetoric, and we've got to stop it. I agree. And what happens is, is that when people are honored and respected, there's a natural motion to life and a natural rhythm and a natural spiral and people will form groups and organizations and communities, but it will be totally different. It will be organic. It will be based on love. It will be based on respect and it'll be a totally different ballgame. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, you've been listening to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. Our guest today has been Dr. Duke Pesta, and you can access his bio by going to the first interview. If you just go to our website, cuttingedgedoc.com, and go to the search bar and put in Pesta, you'll see both interviews. Um, 
but why don't you give your uh, contact information in case people want to learn more about you and your work, and then we'll call it a day. Sure. Uh, we have a website. Uh, Freedom Project Academy is our school, uh, FPE usa.org fpeusa.org we have all sorts of free information all sorts of uh, adult learning opportunities and all sorts of uh, uh, really good educational strategies and classes so take a look at us there um, and uh, thank you David for having me today I always love to talk to you now this is a school that starts at what age kindergarten all the way through high school all right Duke always a pleasure uh, let's do it again and let's close with love and peace. Bye for now. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.